Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley. We have a special show this week to highlight the 50th anniversary of Calix and the kickoff of the fundraiser. We look back over the 50 years by talking with past engineers of Calix, those key people who made it possible for radio to happen. Our guests are previous engineers Sam Wood, Ron Kwan, David Josephson, Susan Calico, and a past station manager, Doc Pelzell. We want to give you an idea of how Calix struggled and evolved into its current form through the eyes of the engineers that made it happen. On with the show. Rick and I are here with Doc Pelzell. And Doc, what was it like early on in the 60s here at Calix? Yeah, I started at Calix about six months after it became an FM station and about um, oh, six and a half years after it was an AM station. As usually a case with a college radio station, a bunch of engineers get together and decide, hey, let's do a radio station. And they put Patty Page records in the library and they want you to play music to study by. Okay, And then they go and fiddle with the wires and everything and get the stuff going. And then the, uh, then the furries come in and, uh, and radicalize everything musically and, and make the engineers all nervous and depressed and then start building an audience. So. We have a phone interview with one of those early engineers from Calix, Sam Wood. Let's go to that. Uh, Sam Wood, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum and talking to us about the early days at Calix. Well, thank you for having me. And what years were you at Cal? I was actually there from the fall of 1963 through the spring of 1968. And how did you get interested in radio at Cal? Well, actually... I uh, lived in the Unit 1 residence hall, which was actually called Putnam Hall. Down the hall from me were two double E's who basically I hung out with for a while, and they took me over and introduced me to the founders of Radio Cal. And what did you find there? You know, what was on the ground engineering-wise? Well, at that point, the station actually had a small studio and a little control room and a shop area, This was all in the basement of Unit 2 Residence Hall. The actual original work that was done by Marshall and Jim started in 1961. Everyone talks about 62. Well, that's about the time that they finally got some of the equipment working, but they actually put this together in 1961. And what were the engineering challenges for you back then? Well, the challenges were that We had no time and very little money, so we ended up having to build much of what we had. We got some surplus gear from some of the commercial stations, and we'd modify some of that, but we ended up building most of the stuff on our own. In fact, the transmitters that we had for the carrier current station were actually built out of food service trays for the chassis and then surplus scrap wood for the frame. The transformers came out of the physics department, and the uh, tubes came out of, I think it was the chem department. So really, this was literally built up from scraps. We spent a lot of time and very little money. And that carrier system that you talked about, describe that a bit. 
that was basically an AM transmitter. It operated in the AM radio band, and it coupled into the power lines of the resonance halls. And it started out in Unit 2, and then they expanded it to Unit 1, and eventually into Unit 3. And students who wanted to listen to the station could tune it in on an AM radio. And who were some of the key people that were in the engineering group back then? You've mentioned a few names. Do you want to sort of run down who was who? Sure. John Grilly worked with me. He became chief engineer uh, later on. Another guy, Bob Tastian, who was an engineer, and he helped out. Also, Lee Felsenstein, who later became one of the Homebrew Computer Network people. John Connors, uh, Scott Loftusness, Mark Kendis, Charlie Bedard. These were all engineering people who helped out in various ways. How much time and impact did this have on your studies? Oh, it was... It was interesting shoehorning everything together because it, I spent far more time than I probably should have down there. I did all right, but mainly because once I got into upper division, the double E part of it, I had a natural ability to be able to work through the problems. And I think some of my experience at Radio Cal actually helped me in some of my double E classes. Do you want to tell some stories about uh, pulling cables? Oh, the cables, yes. We... We're in a very interesting situation with the university. We got friendly with some of the top people at the university and were able to, therefore, have a general attitude toward us of, we don't care how the cable gets into the conduit, but once it's there, you can use it. So we ended up having little wire-pulling campaigns, typically about two or three in the morning, where we'd pull cable, and we called it Midnight Wire and Cable, and we wired up much of the university. One of our biggest accomplishments was the studios in the basement of Dwinnell Hall that we built up didn't have any real connection with the telephone network or any of the other university cable networks that we needed to be connected to. So we uh, ended up pulling approximately 200 feet of 75-pair cable all the way from the grounds and buildings part of Dwinell all the way to the studios, and we figured out a really neat little trick using a vacuum cleaner and a sponge and some fishing line so we could get a pull wire into a conduit that normally you couldn't. So we pulled this cable in that gave us our connectivity into the network at Dwinell Hall. One of the things also I hadn't mentioned, we needed a lot of wire and cable to build the station. So the way we got that was Marshall talked his way into getting access to the Republican convention at the Cal Palace. This is the 1964 Republican convention. So we went over as the convention was winding up, and we scrounged miles and miles of cable off the grounds that people didn't want. So we were able to get enough cable to wire much of our requirements for the station. So some of these outside activities were really quite exciting. What sort of impact did all your work at Cal Radio and then at CalX have on your personal and professional life? Well, it gave me a different dimension because I had pretty much just focused on engineering, and I like building things, and that's why I went into engineering. The Radio Cal experience gave me a taste of what else you have to be able to do, you know. Not that I have a good aptitude for it, but... At least I have an appreciation for issues regarding organization and how to be able to 
put something together and get it through the system. We, we really had to have an organization that we built from the ground up to make this viable, to, to do something like this in an environment where there's basically nothing available to you unless you know how to go and get it. It taught me how to go and get it, which was really useful. I consider that the experience that I got at Radio Cal far more important than the courses that I took. I mean, I took a lot of interesting courses, but the station gave me experience you can't get any other way. And that helped me in startups, and it helped me in understanding how to make things work, not just from the technical end, but from the other end, too. Any reflections on uh, what the station meant to the university community? When we actually built the station, people really liked it and got involved, and things were going well. Unfortunately, later, uh, into the 70s, there turned out to be a number of problems. The station basically had shifted from being run by the engineering people to being run by others in the university who had different agendas. The station's really had its ups and downs, and it's come back really well and with a lot more community efforts now than it had originally. So it is really important that you have a continuing set of goals and a continuing purpose and someone to build the structure into running the station. Initially, when it was starting from scratch, it was ad hoc, so clearly by definition there was no embedded structure that was suitable. Now that the station especially has got structure and it's important to maintain the functionality and maintain the the way it operates and everything from one class to the next because by definition students come and students go and that doesn't lend itself for the kind of structure you need for an ongoing activity. The station has had a long growth cycle here and I'm glad to see it's still around. Sam Wood, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum and talking with us about the early days of Calyx. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our topic this week is the 50th anniversary of Calyx. We're talking to engineers about how Calyx got started. It's also fundraiser week. Call us in the five and dime. That's 642-5259. We're back now with Doc Pelzel. And Doc, next up is Ron Kwan. What are your insights into him? Uh, Ron Kwan came in later on and he he really did a, an amazing job with nothing. I mean, we were still an ASUC-funded club, which was a budget of a few blue-chip stamps was how much they gave us each year. And uh, so the fact that we were even able to, to function at all was truly amazing. But yeah, no, Ron, uh, Ron knew his stuff. And in, in fact, he's, um, he's even still doing that MacGyver kind of thing of building like a lie detector with, a, with an old cigarette butt and a rubber band. Ron Kwan, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thank you. How did you get interested in radio? Well, in radio, I built crystal radios when I was like nine or ten years old through my brother. Getting into broadcasts was actually kind of a fluke. What had happened was one of my friends got his FCC license. He had his third-class license, and he was trying to get a second-class license. Back in those days, you would have your third, your second, and your first class. And nowadays, I think it's only like third class in general. So what happens is he's kind of like almost daring me to do it as well. And he had taken the test, the second class test, about two or three times and had failed them. 
And how he would do is he would take these question and answer booklets and just try to memorize the answers. So I did it the hard way. I I got this book called Electronic Communication by by Robert Schrader, who who taught at Laney College back here in the East Bay. And it's a thick book. It's almost like half of a telephone book. So I spent 150 hours and six weeks studying it between the time I entered Cal and after I just graduated from high school. And I passed the test, but just barely, I think. But I got it. And then when I entered Cal back in 72, I heard that there was a radio station here. And so I said, where is this place? And this is, well, it's at, I think, 500 Eshelman Hall. So I went there, I think, during my second quarter. So that would be like the winter of, yeah, 73. And ran into a few people. And one of them was Henry Chu, who was the station manager. And they said, yeah, we have somebody outside getting the transmitter uh, room ready to to work, but we we always can need help in the studio and elsewhere. So for about three or four months, I worked with this outside engineer, and then I think by the time I had finished my first year, then I became the chief engineer, which then I found out was a very strange job in itself because you get called a lot, <laughs> sometimes at 11 o'clock in the evening, like, hey, uh, the phono preamp went out. And I say, well, what did you do? Uh, well, everything was working just fine. I said, I bet you kicked the switch underneath it. Back in those days, we were so poor, we didn't even mount the damn thing. We stuck this phono preamp near off to the corner, but it was on the floor. And so the disc jockey would be moving his or her feet around and then kick the switch off. And so I would have to come back and deal with that. So it was a very good job, though. I lasted for about roughly a year. Uh, some of the crazy things that, that we did were that we did remote uh, broadcasts. And one of them was the famous UCLA cow game uh, when Bill Walton and John Wooden came to town. I think it was broadcast at, at the Oakland Coliseum or someplace like that. And so I had to whip up some kind of like a, a console and a backup in case of, you know, everything else failed. And fortunately, all that worked. And the backup amplifier was this Heathkit hi-fi amplifier that I found at, uh, I think, in Norton Hall where the all the equipment was, was being stashed at the time. And so, so it worked out fine, and I was, uh, you know, actually sitting on top of Eshman Hall that night, uh, listening to the game, making sure everything was okay. So the radio part was sort of like I just kind of fell into this thing. I I didn't really intend to to work in radio, but it turned out to be a very good experience. So so I took a nosedive in my grades. <laughs> And then I came back during my, my junior and senior year. Did you learn anything from CalX that helped you with your career? The coolest thing about working at CalX and also in broadcast, I got to see how people actually work the equipment. And people don't always read the manual. People will use whatever they have to get the job done. And nobody really cares, uh, you know, well, we have to use a specific headphone or a specific something to this. You know, you have to design the thing to be idiot-proof. And so that was the, the biggest lesson I learned uh, working in broadcasting. And it was actually a great advantage because uh, most people who work for an Ampex or 
Sony, when they get out of college, they have absolutely no practical knowledge of how the users use uh, their equipment and and how they might configure it. So, <laughs> so that 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 part was good. Great, Ron Kwan. Thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thank you. It's fundraiser week. Call five one zero six four two five two five nine to pledge. We are back with Doc Pelzell. And Doc, the seventies were a turbulent time. What was it like here at Calex during that upheaval? There was a lot of different factions at the stations that were sort of vying for either control of it. And as a result, whoever won didn't really do anything except their own particular little fiefdom of area they wanted to work in and everything else sort of fell apart. So the station fell off the air a few times in the 73, 74 period. Uh, There was a time in the early 70s when um, the station studio equipment was stolen. There was no chief engineer. Our license was up for renewal. The student government had had a war with the politics of the station, so we had no budget. So we had literally like nothing left. We were off the air for a period of time. It looked pretty bleak then. This is about in the 73 and and 4 period. Tell a person named Andy Reimer who was, had been a student at uh, UC Irvine, transferred up here for his last uh, few years. And he showed the university that their lack of oversight might cause them to lose their license. And he outlined a program for how he would build a station and a management team and have some accountability, but how the university would have to pump some money and some oversight into it. Uh, he pretty much pulled the station out of the ashes and sort of Phoenix-like it was resurrected and came back and began what is probably on its current path to where it is now. David Josephson was the chief engineer at that time. And we just happen to have David Josephson here. Excellent. Thanks for inviting me. It's always uh, a pleasure to come back and visit Berkeley. How did you get started in radio? Well, I had the good fortune of landing in Berkeley at age about 9 or 10 when uh, all sorts of experiments were happening. My mother was involved with KPFA, and I was an electronic tinkerer, experimenter. I had a pirate radio station in the under the stairs in our house, and she was doing some promotion work for KPFA, and I said, well, gee, maybe I can get involved with real radio here. They were very uh, open to that idea, so I started immediately then learning about production, recording, program uh, editing, and so on. So I got my uh, third-class license when I was 10 (laughs) and had board shifts at KPFA. But we moved away from Berkeley uh, right after some of the worst of the People's Park riots up to more rural northern California and uh, finished high school there and decided that I really wanted to stay involved in, in radio and electronics and audio broadcasting uh, design, stuff like that. So came back to Berkeley and uh, was intent on being an engineering student when there was a, a note on the chalkboard of the amateur radio club that the radio station was looking for an engineer. As far as I knew, the station was off the air and gone, which it was at that point. But I was part of the crew then that uh, resurrected it. What was the time period you were chief engineer? I was chief engineer from 75 through uh, 79. I was here that that four years. What were the main technical issues at the time? This resurrecting of Calix. (laughs) Yeah, building a station from scratch. The challenge was to build something that we could put on the air, making it work, making it legal. 
I started in the spring quarter of 75, and I think we started working on it toward the end of spring. I think we were working on it for most of the summer. I was here all summer. And I think we went on the air before school started, again in the fall. What's important is that there was a crew of people who came together at that time, who most of whom had a background in radio. The general manager, Andy Reimer, uh, had been manager of the UC Irvine station when he was there for a couple of years. The other cluster of people were mostly involved in uh, record business. You know, Tim Devine, who went on to be head of a and at a and I guess. Doc Pelzell, of course, was kind of keeping the continuity of things from the older time and running the music department. So we had a couple of months to figure out what could be patched together. A lot of my friends from KPFA helped. Staff and technicians from the E department provided test equipment, parts, access to bits and pieces. So we just kind of pulled it together from that. The next step was to be something a little bit more accessible and reliable than this closet up on the, the roof of Dwinell, and that's when Andy got to doing the political thing and got us space in Lawrence Hall of Science. We moved the studios up there first. And you moved the transmitter up uh, the onto the hill? That was next. That was stage two. That so the first two, I th- yeah, I think first phase was to get the studio to right, Lawrence we were, Hall because we were being booted out of Dunell. And then the transmitter followed. How long after that? That was a year, more than a year after that, because there was a lot of construction that was secondary to the studio operations. Back in the early days of Calix, a lot of the engineers were students at the time. All of the engineers were students or former students or part-time students. That was actually fairly common in, in college radio around the country. There were more radio engineers out there because the small radio stations around everywhere needed more engineers. The equipment was less reliable. Transmitters needed work all the time. There were a lot more people who, as teenagers, were working in radio. And so there were a lot more engineers, and there were a lot more people who were familiar with the technical requirements of, of an audio chain and a transmitter and studio transmitter links and antennas and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I was a student part-time during that time. I, I think I got it about two years during my four years here. <laughs> I said I graduated from Calix. Most of the other engineers were also students or, or community people. There weren't any staff engineers while I was there, except me. I mean, I, they finally got a kind of a stipend salary for the chief engineer. How did your time at Calix influence your career? Most of the people I know who had solid college radio experiences when they were in school refer to them throughout their lives as a defining experience an enabling experience that was, I mean, I don't know how many of them consider that they learned more from the radio station than they did from classes like I do, but I'm sure it's a significant fraction. The real challenge that drove what I was able to feel confident in doing in later years was dealing with something that had to work all the time with limited resources and patching together things to make a system work. And that, that whole discipline of being able to see a system come together and allocating limited resources 
to fitting that all together. That's the engineering challenge of doing the engineering of a radio station, at least it was then, when things were not reliable, not stable, not dependable, and things were being fixed all the time. And that applies to any technology that's in kind of development, I think. David Josephson, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum, talking You're with us. Very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. K-A-L-X, Berkeley. Doc Pelsell, thanks very much for your help getting the context of the 60s and 70s squared away. And it's, it's fundraiser week here at CalX. It's a CalX fundraiser. So give us a call. We need your donations. 510-642-5259. Back to Spectrum. We're going to talk with Susan Calico, who took over in the 80s as chief engineer. Susan Calico, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum and talking to us about CalX. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to be back at the station and see how nice it looks. I wanted to find out from you how you got interested in radio in the first place. Well, I have to go back much further than my time at Calix. I got out of school and I was very interested in writing and got involved at the Daily Cal. So I was a journalist for a little while and then I became a copy editor. And somehow that wasn't enough, so I went down to KPFA, which is also in Berkeley, and volunteered there. I got involved first in women's news, and then during that time, which was in the mid to late 70s, there were almost no women who knew anything technical at that station. So um, when I was at KPFA, I took advantage of the fact that you could do pretty much anything, kind of like here. I got my third class license, which was required to actually run the board on the air and learned how to do that. And again, was always teaching people. And I was there for probably about 10 years. Everything overlapped with everything else. And I had just studied for and gotten my first class radio license, which was in those days required to be the responsible engineer at a station. And the job at Calix came up. So I applied for that and got in and well, the work began. <laughs> what were the years you were chief engineer at Calix? Uh, I was engineer at Calix starting in 1981, I believe, in the late late in the year, through a early 1995. So it was about 13 years altogether. While you were the engineer, there was a move from Lawrence Hall of Science down to Bottage. What was that like? As I recall, we managed to get the on-air studio down and settled and on the air. And the newsroom was about to move from over in the student union. And I got pneumonia. <laughs> so I was at home in bed for two weeks with a fever while the engineering volunteers basically put in the new studio. So it's, you know, as usual, there's, there's never enough money to do what you need to do. So you just have to do what you can with what you've got. And we were lucky enough to have some good volunteers who could really take care of business. The next big technical challenge you had was increasing the power from 10 watts to 500 watts. How did that go? We had to get a new transmitter, which was huge compared to our one that we had. And so we had to sort of rearrange things up at the transmitter shed and patch all the leaks because, I mean, when you get new equipment, you want it to be good. Uh, we had to have a new cable running up the transmitter tower, which I think it's it's not quite 100 feet. I think it's something like 80 or 85 or something like that. I do remember um, being up on the tower with the surveyors down below because 
in a, such a crowded market as Calix is in in the Bay Area here, there are many FM stations. You have to be careful not to step on anybody else's frequency. So we had to have a very directional and oddly shaped signal. The antenna is crafted so that it directs the signal in the way that you want. But if your antenna isn't at, pointed exactly where you want it, you're going to not be, you know, I mean, the FCC is not going to like you being out of line there. So I went up on the tower, loosened the bolts on the uh, on the antenna, and the surveyor's down below going a little over this way, you know, and I'm like, whack, 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 you <laughs> know. No, no, a little, little bit back. <laughs> but those were expenses we couldn't avoid because it had to be certified. But eventually it all got done. And in our case, it was 500 watts, which isn't a whole lot. That transmitter could have done a lot more. But that was what we were allowed to do. So we had to keep it pretty close. What was the culture like at Calex during your years? I learned that no matter how weird people looked... Most of them were really good people. They were sweet people. They, you know, a lot of our DJs were just really nice people. They were pretty easy to work with. They were considerate. And you wouldn't always be able to tell by looking at them. <laughs> Calex, how did it affect you professionally? I spent 13 years here and I really, really learned a lot more electronics and a lot more transmitter information. And so I really understood why everything worked. Susan Calico, thanks very much for coming in and talking with us. Well, it's been a pleasure to see that the station is still here and that the equipment still works. The music heard during the show was by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons License 3.0 attribution. Please do donate to the Calex fundraiser. And we'll see you in two weeks with another edition of Spectrum at the same time.